Good morning, Anthem. I could listen to Brandon's nice baritone voice, read scripture all day long. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe today I'm a little under the weather, so my voice might actually match it. I might have a Brandon voice today. Uh, well, <laughs> we're continuing, obviously, in First Peter. And uh, here in chapter 4, uh, so far, Peter has been unpacking what does it mean? Who, who is Jesus? And what does it mean for us uh, that we are strangers in a strange land, we've been saying, uh, that we are exiles, that this world is not our home, that we are citizens of another kingdom, and that kingdom, Jesus is the Lord of that kingdom. And, and so what are we to do with our lives now? That's what Peter is going to be transitioning to. Really, last week he started, but this week is really where he starts to say, so then, if this is true, how do you live now? How do you live now in this time where you're in this world and you're exiles, and how do you make the most of this life that God has given you? Why does God have us here right now for this life? You know, one of the things, as Peter's been unpacking the fact that we're made to know God in his glory, to be in relationship with God, to walk with him, it means that well, what grounds it all we've been seeing is that we're made in the image of God. As human beings, like eternity in some way is written on our hearts. It's written on our souls. Like eternity is in our hearts. We desire glory. We desire to do something that is with our lives, that is worth this grand picture that we're given in Scripture of who God is and what he's created the world for. And so what we're going to see today, Peter's going to be talking about what does it mean to make the most of our lives what does it mean to make the most of our lives? You know, in, in setting this up, I remember the first time I really started to think about this, I was in, I, I think it was seventh grade. You know those like career assessments that you do, right? You're in like third grade and they have you do some career assessment. You're like, it's, it's simple. It's fireman or policeman, right? Uh, but seventh grade, I get there and I, I did one of those career assessments. And I remember I met with the counselor and I remember she said to me, she goes, Matt, I got it back and you, you can be whatever you want to be, right? And I remember she said this phrase which for a seventh-grade boy in Ohio was confusing. She said, Matt, the world is your oyster. <laughs> and I remember I thought, one, what the heck is an oyster? <laughs> I've never had an oyster. I do it in relation to hot dogs or macaroni and cheese, and I'd understand what you're saying. But, uh, and the second thing was, there was something about it that hit me as like, I thought you were going to give me direction. <laughs> I thought you were going to kind of like help me, not like you take an assessment and they're like, it prints off and you're like, congratulations, you're uh, a sailor, right? I'm like, wow, okay, cool. All right, let's get busy, All right? Like there, there's just, you can do whatever you want to do. And what I found was that in some ways was kind of overwhelming. Like what, what do I really do? And I remember this was the first time then I, I think I ever heard this phrase in my life which is just a, a, a modern, just kind of a mantra that, that's weaved into everything we do as modern people now. And she said to me, Matt, because I was like, what do I do? What, like, how do I figure that out? Like, okay, anything, what? Like, and she said, Matt, just follow your passions. Follow your passions, right? Now, immediately when you hear that, right, we go, like, there's something good about that, right? That we're, we're made, to, we're passionate people. We have passions. We, we want to pursue that glory. We want to pursue, but there's also something about it that you go, wait, wh what do I, how do I know my passions are a good thing? How do I know my passions will direct me to something that ends up being healthy? And, and so actually I went on this phase, I mean, I remember because I was in junior high, I was like, well, then I guess I will become an MBA 
player, right? And that was done by like the middle of seventh grade, and that's when my sports career peaked. Uh, and uh, middle school. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went from there to like, maybe I'll go into education and history and then uh, history and English teacher. And then, and then from there, I remember getting to college and then thinking, well, maybe actually more it's law. And then from there, actually, for a while, I thought from law, I would go into politics. And, and I kind of went around and eventually God kind of landed me. I realized past, being a pastor was the calling God had for me. But I remember being on that journey for a long time, kind of just trying to figure out like, what, what does it mean? Like this quest for what, what does it mean to make the most of my life? What am I supposed to do, Lord? What, what, what does it mean to actually invest this thing you've given to me these years, this time, this energy? And most of you are somewhere on that quest. All, I should say all of us are on that quest. Somewhere on that quest. And it doesn't matter what stage of life we're in. Right? We could be beginning. We could be a student. You could be young, you might be in junior high right now, at the age I was when I heard that. You could be in college, you could be in high school, thinking about your career, thinking about what life could be. You might be in a season right now where you're a young parent and you just discovered this whole family thing and how do we survive? You might be starting off your career, you might be a young professional, you might be kind of right in the middle of your career and you're wondering like, wow, I've kind of reached the apex of me, of my career and kind of earning potential and whatnot, and what, what do I do from here? You might be in retirement. But all of us, underneath all of it is this drive going, what does it mean to make the most of my life? What does it mean to be passionately engaged with my life? Well, that's what Peter is going to be addressing today. Because he turns from this point of saying, here's who Jesus is, and he's reigning over the world, and he's called you in, he's placed you in this world, and he's called you to follow him, and he wants you to be passionately engaged in stewarding, investing, applying, spending your life for what truly matters. So we're going to talk today about passions and their place in it, and we're going to look at how to passionately steward our lives in order to make the most of it. How to passionately steward our lives to make the most of it. First, we're going to look at the purpose of passion, and then second, or our passions, and then second, how to passionately make the most of life. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, Lord, we thank you that you've made us people of, of passion. Lord, you've made us people who engage and, and desire to to. Lord, make the most of life. Lord, we're filled with this, this desire. And Lord, at the end of the day, it's a desire to worship. We're, we're people of awe. People who have hearts that to have this capacity that sometimes is just ready to burst at the seams. Because Lord, you've made us for just this something, this meaning, this purpose. And Lord, we so desperately want to have a sense of our lives being spent, directed towards whatever that is. And so Lord, would you... Reveal to us today what that is. Point our hearts to it. And Lord, would we take our passions and would we point them in that direction? Lord, for your glory, for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of passion. So over and over again, again, today in our modern world, we hear that cry, right? Listen to the inner, inner person. Listen to your passions. And if you do, that will navigate your life, right? It will kind of lead your life. And, and here's the thing is, our, our passions, what, what's the purpose of our passions? We hear a lot about passion in modern day, but what are the purposes of our passions? And really, are passions all bad? Are passions all good? What, how do we think about our passions? Well, Peter starts off here by saying, well, how you're to live your life, look to Jesus. Because remember, Jesus came. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. God entered into the world in human flesh. He's modeling for us what it means to actually live a human life that is actually filled with joy. That, is, that uses passions correctly. 
And so look at verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, again, Jesus, God comes in the flesh as a human being. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For what, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, passions, but for the will of God. So what we see here is that passions are not bad. Right? Jesus is in, engaged passionately with life. Now, it says that Jesus turned from human passions, but at the same time, what was the key to Jesus' passion? The key to Jesus' passion is right at the end of verse 2. It says that he was living for the will of God. Jesus was living for the will of God. And what Peter's saying here is since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh and Christ lived this way and you've seen Christ come and suffer in the flesh and he's demonstrated, we'll come back to that, the suffering piece of it. But as you've seen him live this way, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, every day when you get up, every day when you go out into the world, I want you to put on lenses or put on a mindset. Like if you think I'm putting on glasses when you walk out into the world and think, see the world through that filter. Arm your mind with that way of thinking. Frame the world through that perspective. That, your life, here's the thing, passions are not bad in and of themselves. Being a passionate person is not bad in and of itself. It is when those passions become unhealthy and are directed towards unhealthy ends. And the key, it says here, to Jesus, living as a human being, passionately engaged, is that it was for a bigger purpose that Jesus lived according to the will of God. That Jesus, when he entered the world, he didn't just kind of try to satisfy himself, Scripture says elsewhere. He wasn't just living for just the fleeting moment that was right in front of him, but instead it says that Jesus lived for the will of his Father. In other words, let God's will, who God is, God's word, what God has revealed about himself, what God has revealed about the, from the beginning to the end, how all of this whole thing ends, all of this. He says, have an eternal perspective. See the world and the life you live every day through the lens of what God is calling you to and then direct your passions there. Don't live, as Peter says, the rest of your time, the rest of your life. And that's why I think Peter's saying, whatever stage you're in, it doesn't matter if right now you're starting off and you're in here and you're five, and actually you'd be advanced beyond your age, your age right now to be like, I'm listening, pastor. I'm ready. Uh, or if you're 70 or 80, Peter's saying whatever the rest of the time God has given you, to arm yourselves with that mind, to not live through seeing life through the lens of the flesh, of fleeting pleasure, of, in other words, just living for what feels good in the moment. Jesus lived with passion, and at the heart of being human is to be passionate. And if you think about it, Jesus lived with passion to the degree that he was able to lay down his life. See, it's interesting that Peter, of all things, highlights Jesus' suffering. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see, like in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, he scorned the shame of the cross, right? 
We, we see this. He lived with joy, and so joy and motivated his life. But we also see here Peter highlights his suffering. Why does he highlight his suffering? Because here's the thing. The Latin word, have you ever heard the passion of the Christ? Right? And it's referring to Jesus on the cross, him suffering on the cross. In the Latin, passion and suffering come from the same word. In other words, something that you are passionate about should be something you're willing to lay down your life for. It's something bigger than you, something bigger than what's just right there in the moment, something, a cause, a purpose, something transcendent, something above you, something that has given you that. You don't have to just live for what's right in front of you, what just is your momentary desire, whatever is your appetite. You are not a beast of the field. Your life should not be driven by instinct. Just whatever's in front of you to lash out, to grab, to take hold of, to please yourself. But instead... What we receive in Jesus Christ is we have seen in his life that God has a purpose for us in this world that is not just to please ourselves for now in things that end up being empty, but we have been given something glorious and eternal. And he says in the same way that Jesus modeled that, in the same way that now you have life in him, you now are resurrected in him, and you walk in that life so that you are able to live life in a way that you live not with trying to grab hold of life and find it all the time in this world and it just end up being empty, but you are able to have something bigger than this world that you find your meaning and your purpose in to the extent that you're even willing to lay down your life. I can't remember the quote somebody once said, something along the lines of, you don't really have a purpose to life until you have something worth losing your life for. Have you ever seen that God calls you to have a vision of his glory so large that you're willing to lay down your life? And it may not be actually dying. It may just be laying down your comforts every day to love and serve others, to love and serve your family, to love and serve your coworkers, to love and serve your neighbors, to love and serve your friends, your roommates, your classmates but to, in some sense, to die to ourselves. Having a vision that big. We're going to talk in a minute about what it means because Peter's going to go into how to cultivate that in our lives. So we would point our passions there, but Peter first is going to talk about what happens when we cultivate those fleshly passions. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles here is just a, a word for unbelievers, those who don't have faith in God and Christ. So they're not looking to Christ. They're not arming them, themselves with that same way of thinking. They're arming themselves with a way of thinking that is the exact opposite, which is living for momentary pleasure, just living for this world, because that's all they see that they have. So the time has passed that suffices for doing what Gentiles do, living in unbelief, what they want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And so what are these? Why does Peter highlight these? And there's, there are all these different kind of passages throughout the New Testament where they'll kind of group together kind of a list of sins. And it's like, why these ones, right? Like some of them, you know, it's like you get things in there like witchcraft and sorcery. You're like, is Peter saying that's okay, right? No. I know some of you are struggling with that. Uh, like, ooh, convicting. Uh, put away your wand. Uh, 
But sensuality, why sensuality? Because he's highlighting here the things that specifically when we live our lives, just turning ourselves over to our passions in the moment and just turning ourselves over to them, the things that we end up doing and building our lives around. So these are almost like the cups you could think of that we end up pouring our lives into. So sensuality, we could say that's just driven by a passion for what satisfies our senses. What's just pleasing in the moment, touch. Gorging ourselves with food, taste, right? Now, of course, Peter largely focuses here on touch, especially sexuality. When he says passions here, another way to translate that word general is actually, passions is more general. Lust is really the word that's probably most accurate here. Lust, longing for what's forbidden. Longing for what you don't have and what you're not supposed to have, but lusting after it. He says drunkenness. Drunkenness would just be out of control. I mean, he's just said, and he's going to say, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, right? Drunkenness is the epitome of being out of control in your passions, right? Either on one hand, being out of control in your passions, or on the other hand, drinking yourself into oblivion so that you'd be numb to your passions, but either way, now, just kind of lost on the sea of passions with no ability to kind of rationally steer yourself. Orgies. Another one here is rioting, is another way to translate it. And this means to just, in general, give yourself over to sensuality with others. This means it goes from just the individual to the self, going out and proclaiming this and recruiting for this and calling into this and joining in one another with one another and creating some kind of an echo chamber of the way we're living is meaningful, the way that we're living and pursuing pleasure if we keep it going with one another and we just hear one another's voices and shut everyone else's voices out, then we can almost in this little space create this meaning that we can continue to perpetuate and tell ourselves matters. I want to go off into something about social media with that, but we won't for now. Drinking parties. Another word for this is just to gorge yourselves. Again, it goes public. Notice how this is going from kind of individual to kind of social. That individual sin, when it takes place in our hearts, then for some, somehow that corrupts the society around us and social settings around us, and then it flows back in, right? And so to gorge ourselves with one another. And then lawless idolatry. This is just kind of a broad term to say no rules, no boundaries, no constraints, freedom to give whatever I want to give myself to. Idolatry is a word that's very specific in the Bible, usually that this is something we turn to because it promises us life. It gives us, it speaks to us promises like God speaks promises. If you turn to me, if you worship me, if you bow down to me, if you pour yourself out to me, if you give yourself, trade, transact for me, if you give the energy of your life to earning money to give to me, whatever it is, if you come to me, I will promise you blank. And what this is is a summary thing saying that it is turning to all these things because at the end of the day, there are promises that they've made that only God can make, and they leave us empty 
Peter is listing specific sins that manifest when momentary passion steers our lives. So why is Peter saying these things are forbidden, right? Is, is this just another thing where the Bible is like a killjoy and you're looking at this going, oh man, here's the Bible with its rules again, right? No, the Bible is not doing this because it's a killjoy. The Bible is doing this because it wants to fulfill your joy. I was saying, don't go down this road because these idols, these things will proclaim to you promises. They'll come with packaged with advertising in our day. Buy me, consume me, take me into your heart and make me the place where you build your sense of identity and purpose and life on. And if you have me, then you will never want, you will always feel secure, you will never have anxiety, and on and on and on, you will live in utopia. What Peter is saying is when we live by our passions, what happens is actually those passions get hijacked. And actually, instead of being able to live motivated by our passions towards healthy things, we end up being manipulated in our passions by others who are selling us things because we're just adrift and no self-control. And we just are constantly hungering for something that is never satisfied. In other words, we're condemned to searching and never finding. That's why the Bible calls these things not freedom, but slavery. And it may not be these. I I know that some of us, we we read this list and you go, well, all right, good. I passed this test, seemingly. Uh, But think about how so many modern things actually do drive. And some of these things are going to be things you go immediately like, yep, they're bad things. Some of these are things that are like, they're neutral but I was recently on, on Twitter, and I watched kind of this thread develop of people jumping in, and just, it wasn't like Christian Twitter. I don't even know if that's a thing, or possible. Uh, but they, <laughs> they had this, this uh, uh, where it's kind of a thread of just folks kind of adding in, what, what, what is it about life that these things kind of hook our hearts, and they drive us, and why do things, how they become popular in a modern sense? And this is what they said. They said, porn is popular because people are starved for intimacy. Video games are popular because people are starved for agency. Video games, kind of neutral. Porn, reject. TV series are popular because people are starved for something interesting happening in their lives. Self-help is popular because people are starved for solutions to all the other things they're starved for. Internet arguments are popular because people are starved for meaningful conflict. Drugs are popular because people are starved for the divine. Fandom is popular because people are starved for values. Causes are popular because people are starved for meaningful work. Why, why do I read this? And even if we assess this and go, I, I actually think there's something different there that's going on. Either way, you get the point, which is everyone knows, for some reason, our hearts are drawn to things to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to give us, we're reaching for something out there. And we're trying to find it in what's right in front of us. Because modernity does not give us anything transcendent. In a recent work I read called Addiction and Virtue, it talks about why is there so much, and this isn't the only rise of, with mental, uh, just with depression. And they were talking about kind of this like malaise in modernity and kind of this like vanilla existence. And how we've been seeking now for so long in the modern world, and we have so many things right at our fingertips that we can have all the pleasures and the desires and delights. We can have them instantly. We can have them privately. We can gorge ourselves on them. And yet we keep seeking and seeking and never finding. And actually now the problem with modernity is that we're actually extremely bored because we actually have all the stuff and it's still not fulfilling us. 
So what Kent Dunnington says, he says, the absence of a shared or ultimately justifiable telos, meaning purpose to life, makes modern persons uniquely bored. Because one can do anything, there is nothing to do. It is not only as in the case of standard boredom that a particular way of life seems pointless, rather the search itself seems pointless and therefore boring. Hyperboredom names the paralysis brought on by modernity's inability to justify one commitment over the others. In other words, <laughs> you find that we're just hyperbored. It's like what's going to happen tonight, right? It's Halloween, right? <gasps> he said Halloween church, right? Uh, happy Reformation Day. Uh, <laughs> I thought about because it was Halloween, no lie, for the elder candidates to have them come up to you like a mass singer type thing. Like they came up and they had to sing. Like, guess who it is, right? Anyways, uh, they shot it down. This is why we have plurality. Uh, so with... Um, <laughs> uh, tonight's Halloween, right? And what's going to happen is all the kids are going to get all the candy, right? And they're going to go home and they're going to gorge themselves on all the candy. They're going to have all the, the things they want in their mind and all the sweets. And they're going to eat all the sour stuff and the sweet stuff and the chocolatey stuff and everything. And they're going to drink a soda and whatnot. And you're going to let them because it's Halloween, right? And at the end of the night, they're going to be sitting there staring at the candy bag going, Ugh, right? That's a picture of modernity, we're, we're just consuming as if it's just all this hypersoluble stuff. No nutritional, spiritual value. And we're gorging ourselves as if we're just trying to constantly cram ourselves with cotton candy and candy bars and sweet stuff and things that pleases us in the moment. But the problem is, it just leaves us empty. Now, that's the internal reality. And there's also an external reality that Peter brings up here. Because there's going to be external pressure. Because what Peter says is that there's something that happened in his day that happens all throughout time, which is that if we don't give in, if we don't give ourselves passionately along with the crowd to these things, we'll be maligned. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Just giving, debauchery just means a flood of giving yourselves over to those passions. And they malign you. They tear you apart. They claim things about you. They say you're morally corrupt. You're not, it's not right or wrong, you're bad. Why does it bother them so much? I mean, in our day, why does it matter whether you choose not to join in hookup culture here in college? If you decide not to get completely plastered at a party, we could parallel this. If you don't join with the swing culture, I know it's a thing. Said it in church. Why is it that these things lead to being maligned? Because what Peter is going to say is that when you refuse to partake, it pulls back the veil on the meaninglessness and emptiness of it all. Because why shouldn't you partake? It feels good, right? None of those things are out there because they're, everyone's doing it because, well, so let's do this, right? We're doing it because there is some semblance, right? Like, it's like we're lapping up the dust because there's a little bit of cinnamon in it. There's something there that for a moment gives us reprieve, a moment gives us escape, a moment gives us pleasure, a moment just directs those passions and seems to fulfill them until, boom, it's empty. Well, why don't we join in? 
Ah, because you know there's something greater that's worth suffering for, that's worth not giving in, that's worth a moment of not having that pleasure, a moment that's invested in eternity, something that's more. Something bigger, better, worth delaying gratification, worth disciplining yourself for. Purpose. Meaning. And so they call you names. They laugh at you. Why? Why? Why is it? What's underneath all that? And it it doesn't matter how kindly you say no. No, thank you. Now, if you're a jerk about it, that's a different conversation. But why are you maligned? no matter how kindly you say it, because at the end of the day, your refusal to partake judges their actions as empty, as worthless, as aimless, not worth it. It's why they malign you, Peter says, attack you, because your very lifestyle calls into question the meaning of theirs. There's so much I could go into right now, too, where this is being hyper-amplified because of living in a socially constructed age. We've talked about that earlier in this series. We just, at Salt Retreat last weekend, we talked about this dynamic. But this is being so amplified. don't know how to construct a modern identity without it being public and social. And so even more so, when we say, no, I won't partake, this is why it's even doubling down. And why this right here, these words, seem so real right now. But here's the thing. Well, who are they really mad at? Whose judgment is it really? Look at verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why Peter goes immediately to judgment after they malign. They judge you as bad, which is why they malign. And so what you do, what's happening is because your actions are actually embodying the judgment of God of saying, this isn't worth it. This, I just, I, I get why you're drawn to it. There's part of me that's drawn to this, but I can't because there's something more that's out there. You're embodying the truth of God's world. You're just following him. And so the best you can do is respond as Moses does to Israel when they're grumbling at the desert, in the desert, Adam. In Exodus 16, 8, people come to him. Moses, you, you're the one. When the whole time Moses is just embodying God's leadership and he says, what are we? Moses says, who am I? What, what are we? The like, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Ultimately, It's maligning the Lord. God's law is on our consciousness, and your refusal to join reminds them that he judges, as Peter says, both the dead and the living. Because it's not working out that well. And you dare to live a different way, which pulls back the veil and calls it into question. Pop the echo chamber. So why Peter then encourages them in verse 6, because probably in his day many were killed or at least socially ruined, banished for living and obeying God and not joining in. It says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, even though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What's he saying? He's saying the followers of Jesus who were killed physically, socially, they were judged by the world. 
but the judgment of the world is empty, as empty as the life the world is pursuing. In other words, don't judge or don't worry about how you are judged, mocked, and ridiculed. It isn't the final word. God's word is the final word. And God has given us passions, purpose, not to drive us to endless hunger, to manipulate, to be used to manipulate us to emptiness, but to motivate our lives to something greater, to make the most of them by pointing them to eternity and his glory. So lastly, how to passionately make the most of life. In verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It's interesting, he says the end of all things is at hand. It's, it, like a, it's a good imagery where it's almost like the end of all things. It's right there at hand. Like Here we're talking about momentary pleasures. And what Peter does in verses 1 through 6 is kind of like momentary pleasures, what it means to give your lives over to those passions. But then he says in the second part of this passage, how to live, channel that passion for something meaningful. And so he's just told you about passions that are immediately at hand. And he says, but remember also, put it in perspective, the end is also at hand. So close you can reach out and touch it. And Peter probably for them was saying, obviously, any moment now, Jesus could come back. There's also a reality to the fact that the end of all things of our lives in, the, in terms of this world is can at any moment. I remember this hit me. You know how when you're younger, you're like walking through life, like you just, you're going to live forever, right? And... Uh, I remember I was on campus, and there were these buses that zoomed around campus, and I was talking to a friend, and I had headphones on, and I, I kind of had, I put them back on, and I remember I turned, and I, I went to just walk, and there, I had no idea, a bus was just going by, 30 miles an hour, like, not even this far off the curb, and I turn, and my friend grabs my book bag, like, vroom, and I remember I went, what, right as I, I feel like the heat of the bus rush by. And that was the first time it ever hit me where I was like, I almost just died, right? I just became a hood ornament, right? And here's the thing. We go through our lives as modern people, and we don't realize that that is how quickly you are not promised you will get home to lunch today. We are not promised tomorrow, let alone our next heartbeat. Peter says, live accordingly with an eternal perspective every day with the passions God has given you, pointing them towards that reality, investing them in that reality. And so he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, focusing your mind, not out of control, not drunk in your passions, not drunk in irrationality, not just going through life out of control, but he's saying, channel, focus your mind every day on the truth of who God is, and on eternity. And he says, for the sake of your prayers, and I think what he's saying there is, he said this earlier in the book, and I think sometimes this falls flat. We're like, why for the sake of our prayers? Well, because prayers do things. And what we should be living is our lives constantly in the presence of God, because Jesus has, is our high priest who's gone before us into the throne room of God. We now have access to our heavenly Father. And we will, for all of eternity, be in the presence of God, of the God of the universe. And he reigns over our lives. So we should be living our life every moment right now as if we're in the presence of God with Jesus. So he says, live now for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of are you living every day, Christian, in the throne room of God? Every day, live self-controlled, focus your mind on that reality. That is right now the reality that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. We have access. Nothing will give you an eternal perspective like that. 
And then Peter is going to Peter is going to then rightly align their passions. And so let me hit this because I know we're going a little bit over here. Peter presents, this is from a commentator, it says he presents the positive side of the contrast in lifestyle. Not drunken debauchery and license, but sober clear-headedness marks the Christian. Love, not lust, fills his heart. The Christian home is open for hospitality, not orgies. Ministry replaces exploitation. What Peter is going to do in verses 8 through 11 is he is going to take those passions of the flesh and he's going to say, cultivate these for eternity. So the way, three ways to cultivate an eternal perspective to make the most of life, to make the most of life, to passionately live for what is eternal. One, choose to love one another. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to have to hit these faster than what I want. But when everyone, here's the thing, when everyone in the church is looking for offense, rather than choosing to love with the love that we've been given in Christ, we are preaching to ourselves over and over again a false gospel. We are not saved. We are not reconciled to God through our self-righteousness. We are reconciled to God by the love of God being shed in the world, the light of Christ coming into the darkness, our darkness, and us who hated him and were in rebellion to him while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because God is love. He came into the world because he loved the world. And now Jesus says, if you want to have a heart that is formed for eternity, increases every day your capacity for eternity. Think of those who you are holding grudges against and you refuse to forgive and you refuse to love. Because one day, especially, Peter's talking here about in the body of Christ, I think. I think he's talking about in the church. Here's the thing. One day, there are believers that I know that we, we don't see eye to eye on so many things. But I know that they have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and we're going to spend eternity together. And that is not a threat, right? We are going to spend eternity with one another, and that is not a threat. That is good news. And we so often live our lives fighting with one another and thinking the worst in one another and taking up offense constantly versus going to one another and bringing love to the table and our approach to one another. Is there anyone you're withholding love from and hating in your heart where Jesus does not? That will point you to eternity, to what Jonathan Edwards, an old theologian, calls a place called love, because we will be immersed in a deluge of God's love for all of eternity. Number two, make room for one another. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality means we welcome others into our lives, sacrificially making time, making space for others. But why do we make room for others, right? Because Jesus made room for us in the household of God. You know, why were you at center? It's not like God was just like, oh, let's send out some RSVPs, save the dates. Hey, come on in, right? Jesus, he had to die. <laughs> Jesus tabernacled in the world. He took on flesh in order to enter into the world, in order to die, in order to tear open that curtain to say, come on in. And here's the thing. For all of eternity, we're going to sing the praises of that reality. And right now, God wants us to embody that reality and not just embody it for others because it's a duty, but as we do so to realize what joy there is when we look up from ourselves to making room for others. We are made for that reality. So do you, or what are ways you can be hospitable to one another right now? What are ways that you can open up your doors, open up your schedule to one another? 
Lastly, bless one another with gifts from God. Look at verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, we have both gifts that are natural, gifts that we get at birth that God has hardwired for, right? Intelligence, uh, creativity. You know, we develop gifts then like maintenance or medical gifts, healing gifts. And then we also have spiritual gifts that God gives us by by the Spirit of God at our new birth. All of those, what he's saying here is use those, channel those in order to bless others. And here's the thing. Some of you are like, I'm not an evangelist. I don't know how to share the gospel. Here's the thing. God has probably gifted you in such a way to beautify the gospel through the way that you serve others, through the way that you show hospitality, through the way that you... uh, you're able to step into people's lives and speak simple words of encouragement. Others of you, when God says he's gifted you to speak, don't see that as a small thing. I think that just doesn't mean what I'm doing right up here right now. What that means as well is just the ability to speak an encouraging word in a fitting time, a needed time, to speak a word that is hard to hear, but speak it well. Uh, we think Genesis 1. God spoke the world into existence, and we are made in his image. Not because we can speak things out of, into existence, but because we can take the things that are in existence, and words are powerful. They destroy lives, and they build up lives. How are you using your words? How are you su- serving others? Are you stewarding the gifts that God has given you? And so where I'm going to end here is a chart, kind of a takeaway, because what he says in verse 11 is in order that, why all these things? Why God? Why channel my life? passionately before these things. And he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong a glory and dominion forever and ever. What he's saying here is there's not a part of the world that Jesus doesn't look to and say, that is mine and I'm redeeming it. I'm creating it. And one day heaven will break into earth and you will be with me forever. Spend your lives learning how to cultivate what is good and beautiful and true and glorious. Because that's what we're doing for all eternity because I reign. And so one of the ways we can think about this is our moving towards stewardship with our life. One is perspective, worldly versus eternal. The other is investment, passive versus active. Some of us are in a place where we're passive and worldly, right? It's shallow living. How are we living with our time? How are we living with our talents? How are we living with our treasure? Just kind of going through life passively. Then there's also an eternal perspective. I know it lasts forever, but I'm passive and I don't, I don't steward. That's slothful. Laziness is what the Bible calls it. Or active, right? I'm actively investing, but I live for the world. Selfishness. I live for what's now, what's immediately at hand, and I'm living for that. Storing up treasures and barns. Jesus says, fool, your life will be taken from you tonight. Last one. Stewardship is when we bring together both active investment in the things that are eternal and then also an eternal perspective. And we invest our lives in the things that last and we do it actively looking. What I would ask you to do this week is look at that chart and think through time, talent, treasure, the three I gave you here, whatever it is, and think through where am I really following right now? Where's our family following right now? Where are we as roommates? Where are we falling right now on that chart? And how do I move towards stewardship? channel my life towards the things that last, making the most of life. God wants you to passionately make the most of your life, not just any life, but an eternal life, an eternal life passionately lived for the glory and dominion of Jesus Christ forever and ever. 
Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, the reality, Lord, that we have a passion. Lord, we know eternity is stamped on our hearts. We know that there's something we're meant to live for, and Lord, it's you. Lord, it's to know your glory, to cultivate this, the glory in the world that you've put here, the things you've called us to do, and Lord, give us insight into what are the talents you've given us, the gifts you've given us, the space you've given us to invite others into our lives. Lord, what, is, what are the ways that we're holding back love from one another and becoming bitter. But Lord, don't allow those things to shape our heart, but Lord, to turn into love as you loved us, Lord, to go to you and receive your welcome so we might welcome others, Lord, to receive from you and see that all that we have, all of our gifts are from you in order to bless others. Lord, from the beginning, you've said in your word that you have called your people out of darkness into light. Why? So that they might bless the nations. Lord, might we be a people who see the light of Jesus Christ, and in it, Lord, we would bless this city, we would bless the campus, we would bless our neighbors, Lord, by living for you. Because in Jesus Christ, you have dominion forever and ever without end. Amen.